we would look to to teach us about the greatest love of all. This is it, John chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 13 is called the love chapter because it teaches us as Christians how to love, what love looks like in the life of a Christian. And several other passages shed light on the love of God. But this is the quintessential passage on the love of God, which is the greatest love there is. John chapter 3. And I just want to bring out some truths to you tonight from verses 14 through 21. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. About five wonderful truths about the great love of God. John chapter 3. Let's read the passage together first, and then we'll just take a walk through this passage. Let's read together John 3, beginning at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The great love of God is revealed here. It's opened up. It's unpackaged. It's unwrapped in John chapter 3. And you know, I think you've heard this before, that John 3.16 is called the golden text of Scripture. It is the pinnacle of truth in the Word of God. But it doesn't stand alone. John 3.16 is not, it doesn't appear in a vacuum. John chapter 3, verse 16 appears within a context. And so we're going to look at that context tonight. We're going to see what the verses before it and the verses after it say to highlight the great love of God. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word tonight. Father, we thank you again in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you do hear us and you do love us. And I ask you now to open our eyes to show us this wonderful truth about the love of God, these five great truths about the great love of God. Speak to us, meet our heart's needs, I pray, as you glorify Jesus in our midst. In his holy, precious name we pray. Amen. 
The first truth that I want you to see in the passage is that the great love of God is understood only in light of Scripture. It is understood only in light of Scripture, and specifically Old Testament Scripture. Now, the story that this that John 3.16 appears in, of course, is the conversation that the Lord Jesus Christ had at nighttime with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to interview him. And Nicodemus came to him and uh, gave him some, some flattering speech. And the Lord did not accept the flattery. What he said to him is, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused by that. He didn't understand that. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And be born, of course, that's an impossibility. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And of course, we heard this preached on just recently here from this pulpit, what verse 5 means, what that born of water and born of the Spirit means. Born of water, without rehashing the sermon that our pastor preached a few weeks ago, Born of water does not mean baptism, does not mean water baptism, because in verse 6, he explained what verse 5 meant. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. A man has to be physically born and then spiritually born to be born again. Amen. Verse 7, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now, every time I see these words, ye must be born again, the, the story about George Whitfield comes to mind. George Whitfield preached in England and in the American colonies shortly before the war for American independence. And he made something like 13 trips across the Atlantic to come preach on American shores. And uh, his, his watchword, his theme was John 3, verse 7. You must be born again. And that's what he thundered all over English countrysides and American countrysides. And one day a friend said to him, George, why do you always repeat? You must be born again. And George answered, because you must be born again. And that's the truth. And Jesus said, don't be surprised by that. Don't marvel at that. You must be born again. Why did he say, marvel not? Don't be surprised by that. Don't wonder at that. Don't hold that as a mystery. Why? Because your first birth brought you into a sinful world, born of sinful parents, with a sinful nature, with a, into a sinful, sin-cursed earth, to have a sin-cursed end. So don't be surprised that you must be born again. It just makes sense that you need a new birth. And the new birth takes place. How? How? He's going to show us in this, in this chapter how, and it ties into the great love of God. Now, come to verse 8. Excuse me, come down to verse number 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Now, that's a good question. How can these things be? Nicodemus was 
very, very educated in Judaism. He understood the Old Testament. And yet he, he didn't understand what Jesus was saying to him. Jesus answered, verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? A master means a teacher. Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? In other words, you, you teach. You are a rabbi. You teach the people of God. And yet you don't know these things? Verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? By the way, that was how the Lord almost always talked to people. He began with something earthly that they understood, and from that he built a bridge of words to heavenly truth. He began with material reality, and he bridged to spiritual reality. He began with temporal reality, and he bridged to eternal reality. Verse 13, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Now this is very, very interesting. We understand that black letters or red letters, or that distinction of red letters is not in was not in uh, John's gospel when he penned it in Greek. That's added in by our publishers. But they've done us a service by giving us red letters to help us to see at a glance what Jesus said. These are the words of Jesus in verse 13. What are the last three words, or the last four words in verse 13? What do the last four words of verse 13 say? Which is in heaven. Now this is really fascinating. He said, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Where was the Lord Jesus Christ at that night as he spoke to Nicodemus? Where was he? Somewhere in Galilee or in Judea. Was he physically in heaven at that time, at that moment? He wasn't physically in heaven. Physically, he was on the earth. But according to the words of the Lord Jesus himself, he was the Son of Man, which is, present tense, is in heaven. How can that be? How could he both be on earth, speaking to Nicodemus, and be in heaven? How is that possible? Unless he's something more than a man. Unless he was something more than the son of man. The dual nature of Christ answers so many questions. He was son of God and son of man. And he was in heaven while he was on the earth. Again, don't ask me to explain that because I can't, but that's what he said. Now, verse number 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I suppose he probably <coughs> paused 
when he said this, he made this statement. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, pause, maybe a long pause to let that sink in to Nicodemus' thinking. Let Nicodemus think about what he was telling him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, allowed Nicodemus' mind to run back to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, the story of the brazen serpent, Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. And he knew that story. Nicodemus surely knew that story, being a master, a teacher of Israel. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now this is the second time he's called himself the Son of Man in this passage, and you've probably heard it said before, this was the favorite term of the Lord Jesus for himself. He was the Son of God, and we as Bible believers love to emphasize the fact that he was God in the flesh, and that's what the theme of the Gospel of John is. But even in the Gospel of John, Jesus' most commonly used term to refer to himself is the Son of Man. He was the Son of Man that came down from heaven, who was simultaneously in heaven. And according to verse 14, he would be lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now we know what it means when it says the Son of Man would be lifted up. He was going to be raised up on the cross. This conversation took place probably just a couple of years before Jesus was crucified. And apparently he knew it was going to happen because he said the Son of Man must be lifted up. But what does it mean when he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? Well, the story in Numbers chapter 21, let's look there, Numbers chapter 21. The story in Numbers 21 is, uh, let's give the, the Cliff Notes version, let's give the very brief version. The people, the Bible says in Numbers 21 verse 4, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And in their discouragement, they complained to Moses. And God's response to their complaint and their murmuring, in verse 6, was, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Fiery serpents. Venomous Snakes. One of my boys informed me several years ago that there's no such thing as a poisonous snake. I said, huh? He said, yeah, they don't have poison, they have venom. And my thought was, it doesn't matter if it looks like a snake, I'm going to run away from it. Amen. I don't like snakes, and I'm glad I live in Hawaii. Amen. And the funny thing is, after we spend any time in the mainland, and usually it's in the south, whenever we're there, because that's where most of our family is, uh, you go into the woods, you keep your eyes open. You keep your eyes open for snakes. And uh, I've, I've seen them. The kids, some of the kids have seen some, some pretty good-sized looking snakes. But the funny thing is, I've noticed this about myself, when I come back to Hawaii, for the first, I don't know, short period of time after we come back, I still kind of have this, when I'm 
on a trail up in the mountains or in the valley, I keep my eyes open for snakes. Even though I know there's no, there's no snakes to worry about here, I still keep my eyes open. And the Lord here said that he sent fiery serpents. That's venomous snakes that when they bit, it felt like fire. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. And much people of Israel died, by the way. We don't have fiery serpents in Hawaii, but we do have fiery centipedes. And we've seen some big ones in our backyard, haven't we? We have seen some big centipedes uh, over in Kaneohe. <laughs> and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Verse 7, therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have sinned. Now that is an honest statement. That is an unvarnished, uh, un, unadulterated confession. Not, we've made a big mistake. Not, oh, I really blew it. No, we have sinned. By definition, we have disobeyed God. We have grieved God. We have offended God. We have done wrong. Not, I made a mistake. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Now they say to Moses, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8 is really unusual. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, Amen. Amen. Isn't it really, isn't it cool how the Bible defines words? Verse 8 says, when he looketh upon it. And verse 9 says, when he beheld. To behold is to look at. So imagine that's you. You were one of those Israelites complaining to Moses, complaining against God. You were bitten, and you're watching people around you die, and you know that's good. You're, you're going to die soon, too. But here comes Moses, and he holds up this pole with a serpent on a snake on it made out of brass, and he holds it up there, standing there in the wilderness, holding up the pole. He raised it up, and he said, Look! Look! Look and live! And it came to pass, the Bible says, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he, that is the man bitten, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so one of those good old songs says, there is life for a look at the crucified one. Look and live. Look and live. Not crawl to the serpent, Moses didn't say, come, crawl to the serpent, and you'll live. 
He didn't say, come confess all of your sins to the serpent. He didn't say, come be baptized in the name of the serpent. He didn't say, come say anything, pray to the serpent. He said, look at the serpent. And when they looked, they lived. When they looked, they lived. And in John 3, the Lord Jesus made this comparison, this illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that when sinners who are bitten with the sting of death, which is sin, and admit we have sinned, I have sinned, and look to him who is raised up, they will live. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's love, God's great love is understood only, only in light of the scripture. If you don't have the Old Testament, then the cross makes no sense. If you don't have the Old Testament, the great love of God has nothing to, to shine upon and shine in context of. The great love of God is understood in light, only in light of Scripture. The second truth that I'd like you to see tonight is this, that the great love of God is unappreciated without a knowledge of sin. The great love of God is unappreciated without a knowledge of sin. Look at John 3 again. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What was, what was the underlying, underlying reality of that story about the brazen serpent? The underlying reality was the underlying cause of all of that, of the need for the serpent, was that they had sinned. If the people had not sinned, Moses would not have needed to raise up, to lift up the serpent in the wilderness. It was because of their sin that the serpent was needed. Verse. 15, he said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Why would anyone perish without the Son of Man being lifted up? Because of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Now look how he describes. Look how he describes us. In verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Watch. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. The light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. That's how he describes us. He describes us as men who love darkness rather than light. Which means that we have a choice in the matter. Right. Love darkness rather than light means we have chosen our sinful way. 
We've chosen our sinful way. We delight in our sin. We love our sin. He says their deeds were evil. That's how he describes you and me. In our natural state. You hold that little baby. He seems so innocent. Until, until he finds his voice. And when he finds his voice, what is his voice? What does his voice cry out for? Himself. Meeting his needs. He's either hungry or he's dirty. Oh, there could be something else too. He might have a tummy ache. I understand. But it's all about himself. Have you ever, have you ever seen a baby make some kind of gesture that indicates, you know, mama, daddy, I know you're tired. Why don't you just rest? I just want you to rest and just be refreshed. Just take a nap. And don't let me bother you. Just sleep through the night. I've never had a baby acting like that. <laughs> All the baby thinks about is me. Big I, number one. Like that old country song said, I'm looking out for number one. That's true. What a confession. <laughs> I'm looking out for number one. That's what we do. We look out for number one, for big if we don't understand our sin then the great love of God will be unappreciated right. we cannot appreciate we cannot, we cannot grasp and see the greatness of God's love unless we see how sinful we are it's when we see I'm guilty of breaking God's law I have I have broken God's heart I've grieved and offended God. I've made myself unworthy to walk God's way. I've made myself unfit for heaven. I've made myself unacceptable to God by my own sin. Until we realize that, the love of God doesn't mean very much. The love of God is just... Misunderstood, unappreciated, until we understand the great love of God. Over 20 years ago, when I worked security, there was a, another security guard that uh, sometimes our shifts overlapped. This was a big uh, weightlifter type guy, tall guy, broad shouldered. He looked like our former neighbor. Yes. Looked almost like, like him. They could have passed for brothers. And, uh, Without getting into too much detail, somebody brought in a, uh, a magazine that was completely inappropriate for men to look at. And I remember him sitting there at the, at the security desk, flipping through that thing, flaunting his wickedness. Now, the same man I talked to at some other time, I don't remember if it was before or after that, that evening, but I tried to witness to this man. He said, oh, yeah, 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 I know that. My grandma told me about that. I said, really, what did she say? He said, oh, yeah, you got to accept Jesus into your heart, which, of course, is not biblical, just for the record. Asking Jesus into your heart is not a biblical concept. 
But he had this happy-go-lucky idea that, you know, whenever, whenever I want to, I can just get an insurance policy for my sin by just accepting Jesus into my heart. God loves me. Okay. I'm okay. He did not see his sin for what it was. I pity him. I feel sorry. I, I don't know where he is today. That was over 20 years ago. And there are people like that all over this world, all around us. And we, some of us, were like that too. Until you have knowledge of sin, the great love of God will be unappreciated. Thirdly, the great love of God is unprecedented. Unprecedented among the world's thought systems. The great love of God is unprecedented among the world's thought systems. Look at verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We like to use the term so to describe the word love to say it was such to, to, to say it was such great love, but really the word so describes what he did as a result or a manifest a showing of his love. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is in complete contrast to all the, the, the world's religious systems of thought. For example, the Canaanite deities required human sacrifices. That's why God ordered the Israelites to go into Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites, particularly the men, because of all the wickedness that they had committed. And some of that wickedness included offering babies burned alive on altars made of glowing hot metal to their gods. And the Lord told Israel, I don't want you to learn the ways of the nations because when you do, it will be a snare to you. That was the thought system of the Canaanites. The Greeks, the Greeks thought that their, their system, their myths, their mythology was full of gods who were ruled by their feelings. They were ruled by their passions, their anger, their lust, their drunkenness, their desires. They were basically elevated human beings and they treated human beings, these gods in Greek mythology, treated humans as the victims of their own flighty, uncontrolled emotions. That was the Greek system of thought in their religion. Do you think that looks like anything like a God who would give his own son in the Canaanites or among the Greeks? The Romans thinking was that their emperor, a mere man, was God simply because he had conquered other peoples. The Chinese emperors viewed their subjects as existing for their own enjoyment, for their own pleasure, for their own prosperity. Which sounds a lot like politicians nowadays, doesn't it? But the great love of God appeared. The 
kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And it was like a laser beam blasting into the midnight of this world's thought systems. It was unprecedented. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Unprecedented. The fourth truth that we see about the great love of God here is that it was undeserved. The great love of God is completely totally undeserved by sinners. Undeserved by sinners. Look at verse 19. John 3 verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone, verse 20, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. Does that sound like a group of people that deserve the great love of this great God? Not at all. The way the Lord Jesus described us here is that we were totally undeserving. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 gives another description of us in our sin. Titus chapter 3 Verse 3, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's how God describes us in our sinful condition. Does that sound like a group of people, a kind of people that deserve the love of God? In verse 4, Titus 3, verse 4. After saying all of that about us, all those nasty, mean ways of talking about us, look what he says in verse 4. This is one of the blessings of having church on a busy street. Verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Watch this, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us, Read the word shed, poured. Think of the word poured, P-O-U-R-E-D, poured. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see the contrast? In verse 3, Paul's, Paul pulls no punches. No holds barred. He lets us have it. This is what we were like. But, verse 4, you see, whenever the New Testament describes men in their sinful condition, people in their sinful condition, and then says, but, you know something good is about to come. But, after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior, the kindness and love of God our Savior. Kindness. 
kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. He saved us. According to his mercy, he saved us. That is the undeserved love of God towards sinners. The great love of God is undeserved by sinners. Look at Romans chapter 5. I know most of you know these things already. But I want you to just uh, just wade out into the love of God. And just, just think about it. Get your mind saturated with the truth of the great love of God. Romans 5 Verse number six, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, that word means maybe, perhaps, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. So a good man might die for a righteous man. Uh, excuse me, someone might give his life for the life of a righteous man. And uh, someone might die for a good man. But the, the implied statement here is that no one's going to die for a bad man. No one's going to willingly give his life, volunteer to give his life for a bad man. That's just not done. Verse 8, but, here's one of those buts, but God commendeth, God demonstrates, God proves, God makes known, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, so not righteous, not good, Christ died for us. Amen. So it's not a man giving his life for a man who's better than he is. But the man, the perfect man, giving himself for those who are infinitely lower than he is. Infinitely less worthy than he is. Christ died for us. And that is unappreciated unless you have a knowledge of your own sin. Right. If you have the idea that you have one iota of goodness that somehow deserves God's love and kindness toward you, then you don't appreciate this. But if you understand that you are completely without hope, lost in sin, deserving of God's anger and God's wrath and God's judgment, when you come to this, these four words, Christ died for us. Then you see the great love of God. Amen. You may have heard me tell about when Samuel and I went to visit Fort McHenry uh, in, uh, oh, Samuel, what city is it? I can't even think. My mind just went blank. Fort McHenry. Well, it's, it's where the Star Spangled Banner story took place in the War of 1812. And uh, we went to the visitor center. They showed the big screen movie. It's on three, a three-paneled screen. And uh, they told the story. They showed the maps, and it all made finally all made sense to me how things played out that day. 
in the War of 1812. And of course, uh, how the flag remained on its mast and the British were not able to take that flag down and the Americans remained steadfast and they, they kept that flag flying. And at the end of the story, they played the Star Spangled Banner. And some of us stood. We were sitting, of course, and they just had chairs set up. Some of us stood up and some of us put our hands on our heart like good Americans ought to. And some of us just tears ran down our eyes because that means a lot. If you know the, the history of this country, that means a lot. And I stood there, tears running down my face. And as, as they played the Star Spangled Banner with the screen, I think still showing the flag on the fort, on the, fort the screen rolled up into the ceiling. And when the screen rolled up into the ceiling, off not too far in the distance, a few hundred yards away, I suppose, was Fort McHenry behind the windows with the flag fly. Oh, this American just fell apart. I just fell apart, man. Because we just been given the story. We just been given the story of how men gave their lives to keep that flag flying because that flag was not just a piece of cloth. That flag represented their country. And as long as that flag flew, their country remained an independent nation. And so we just heard the story. And because we knew the story, some of us were just emotionally affected. It was a strange feeling. I, I was so stunned. I was so amazed. I was surprised. I really was to see there's Fort McHenry right there. And there's the flag. Not the flag, of course, but there's our flag flying to this day. 200 years later. <clears throat> and it's when you understand the backdrop when you understand what our Lord went through and the sin that he bore, your sin, my sin, when you understand that, then when the curtain is raised, the curtain of scripture, and when God commends his love on the cross, when he manifests and he demonstrates his love on the cross and you see it, then it makes sense. Then it clicks. And the light comes on. Then it rings true. I don't deserve that. We look at the cross and we say, I don't deserve that. The great love of God is undeserved by sinners, meaning you and me. And finally, John chapter 3 reveals this truth about the great love of God, and that is this, that it is, that it results in unending joy for the saved. Look at John 3, verse 15 again. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I preached this several years ago in the Chinese service, and after the service, a lady raised her hand, and she said, but why do I want to have everlasting life? I had never heard that question before. I, I, I just assumed everybody wants to have everlasting life. But apparently I had not preached it clearly. Because the reason everlasting life and eternal life is such a wonderful thing is that the Lord gave it over in contrast against something else. Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 16, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the Old Testament, the first time you see the word perish as something that happened to somebody is in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, that is when the people followed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and they rebelled against God's chosen high priest, Aaron, and Moses. And the Bible says that they took up the, their own censers to offer their, their worship to God in their way, not God's way. And God... The Bible says that God's judgment was this, that the earth opened up and swallowed them up. And the Bible says this. These are the, these are the words that the Bible uses to describe in number 16, verse 33, that they went down into, uh, they went down alive into the pit. They went down alive into the pit. And the Bible says that these perished. And so the Bible does, never, does not ever say, this is the definition of perish. But it describes perishing this way. People, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, going down alive into the pit. In the New Testament, there is a correlation to the pit. It's called the lake of fire. The definition of perishing is being cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21. Revelation 20. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The opposite of everlasting life is perishing. And perishing is being thrown into the lake of fire. The lady said, why do I want eternal life? Why would I want everlasting life? Here's why. Because it's the opposite of perishing. It's the opposite of going to hell. But for the believer, for the saved person, there is unending joy. Unending joy. The great love of God gives unending joy 
for the same. So the great love of God is understood only in light of the scripture. The great love of God is unappreciated without knowledge of sin. The great love of God is unprecedented among the world's thought systems. The great love of God is undeserved by sinners, by you and me. And the great love of God finally brings unending joy for the same. This sermon is not a typical sermon in which the preacher will call you to say you need to do this or that. I, of course, if you're not saved, <laughs> you need to receive the great love of God in his son who died for you and rose from the dead. But if you are saved, here is what, here's what you need to do. Okay, listen closely. Here's what you need to do. If you are saved, you take these truths and you just bask in the love of God. Amen. I was so happy yesterday. I got to visit my mother yesterday and, uh, at the hospital. And on Saturday night, late Saturday night, she went in. Hardly got any sleep Sunday morning. Saturday night, Sunday morning. Uh, Monday night, got just a couple hours of sleep. Um, Tuesday night, didn't do so well. But Tuesday, not yesterday, when I went to visit her, she still had a headache and she still had very little appetite, but she did get to walk and she, you know, they have the hospital rooms divided, two beds, divided by the little curtain. Hers was on the window side. The, full, the, whole, the whole wall is a window. And uh, the curtain was, you could roll the whole curtain up and beautiful view of downtown trees. And I, I really think Hawaii, I've seen many, many, many cities and Hawaii, Honolulu, I think is one of the prettiest downtowns, uh, at least um, if you don't uh, you know, go to Chinatown at night. But uh, she had that view, sunsets, beautiful. But she was sitting there yesterday afternoon in the afternoon sun, leaning against the glass, basking in that warm sunlight coming through that window. And I kept telling her, Mom, this is the best thing for you. Just get soak up that sunlight. Mm -hmm. You need that sunlight. That's what's gonna help you sleep. That's gonna help your, your brain calibrate and, and get the sleep you need tonight, get that sunlight. And she sat there for probably several hours just basked in the sunlight. And she slept well last night. She slept so well last night. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with walking and sunlight. And of course, God's been praying for her, but I think just basking in that sunlight helped her a lot. Many of us Christians are not finding rest for our souls. We're, we're like Martha. We're careful and troubled about many things. And we need to pull ourselves away from those cares and just bask in the sunlight of his love. Amen. That's not fluffy stuff. That's not fluffy love. That's not God loves you so everything's okay. That is God loves you so he gave his son to take care of our sins. Just soak in that love. Soak. Bathe in it. Bask in it. Wade in it. Swim in it. Great love of God. For God so 
loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What great love is this? It's indescribable. I gotta close with this, but we sang this song on this past Lord's Day, Brother Francis led it for us. I'm trying to think exactly how the words go, but I think it's the last line. For every stock, a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, and were the oceans full of ink, I'm misquoting exactly. All of these things could not write and fully describe the love of God. You got it? Bring it to me. Quick. Mr. Resourceful. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Can you see that? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Our Father, we thank you for this great love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for what that love compelled you to do and compelled your Son to do, to die on that cross for our sins. And then, having been raised from the dead, to wash our sins away and give us an entirely undeserved gift, eternal life. How we praise you, O Lord. We praise you and thank you for this great love. Help us, I pray. Your saints, your people, your saved people, help us to meditate on it and let it compel us to live for thee, to share it with somebody else. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.